Hello. Welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. For those who are still waiting to hear from our normal host, Eduardo Tanzioni, he will be coming back very soon. I am continuing to fill in. I am David McHale, communication specialist for UNCDF. And today we are lucky enough to have one of our regional practice leaders. This is a position there. There's only a small number of them within UNCDF. They cover a wide swath of territory as it relates to not only geographic territory, but also practice territory, thematic territory, and also territory as it relates to goals under the sustainable development goals, including for that matter, women's economic empowerment, which we will be talking about extensively today. My guest today is Neha Mehta. She is the regional head, the regional lead for the Pacific for the United Nations Capital Development Fund. As we are speaking, it is in her evening. She's gracious enough to join us in the later hours. And Neha, we are so appreciative for your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here today. I've been a big fan of the podcast, so it's good to be on this side of talking to you one-on-one. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. I think one of the nice things about talking with you is that, as with any organization, I think to have someone that comes into an organization with as much experience as you have, as much practical understanding, and also as much innovation that you're looking to bring to the organization, those kinds of new leaders always rejuvenate and energize an organization. So I think in order to understand that optimally, it probably would be best to just For me to take a step back and just hear from you, I'd love to just hear about your journey. Now, for those who typically listen to our podcast, this is a question that we reserve till near the end, but I think this is a really important touch point for the purposes of this conversation. So Neha, would love to hear from you the journey that ultimately brought you to UNCDF. Thanks, David, for the kind words. It's a pleasure to be part of the UNCDF family. And I must say that it's just been a very short stint of a little over three months. And it's been a terrific experience and a life dream come true moment for me because at a young age, I remember my father telling me that you should definitely get good grades and make sure you have a master's or a PhD so that you can work for the UN one day. And as he was telling me this time and again, I was really young to absorb the real meaning of this conversation. And as life takes on, you take up different roles. That idea somehow stayed in me. And after I lost my father in 2014, the desire to reach this ambition became even more stronger in me. But coming on to your question of the journey, I'm originally from Agra, which is where you have the Taj Mahal, the epitome of romance and the love in India. And after studying in Delhi, I moved to Singapore to work as a lawyer. So I have a interesting transition from being a lawyer to an entrepreneur because I realized that I've always been fueled by the ambition of reaching the last mile or helping the poor people. So as I was working in the financial sector, there was a deep desire in me to use technology as a force of good. And I remember very clearly in 2017, when FinTech came about, which is financial and technology put together, I was really excited because for the first time, it felt like you can reach the 1.7 billion unbanked people without having the banks available to them through the bandwidth of technology. So I decided to set up my own consulting outfit focused on 
women empowerment. And I called Femtech Partners the idea of amplifying world's 50% point of view. And the intent was to use technology for financial inclusion of women. And as I was running this, especially through the COVID time, when most of us realized that technology is the way going forward, the journey from offline to online is so very important. I was also itching to go back to my original dream of working with the UN. And I used the COVID time to <laughs> sit for a few interviews at UNCDF. And after two and a half years of trying, I finally nailed it. And I remember calling my mom very excited when I had the offer letter in my email. And both of us were, were having tears of joy because we knew that this is something that's so important for us. And it's always been a childhood dream. And I think when you work with the UN, you are able to achieve the social impact. And like UNCDF tagline says, leaving no one behind, unlocking the private capital. I think that really opens so many avenues for women, youth, and disabled people. Coming from India and from a middle-class family, a brown woman working in tech, I realized that we need more women at the decision table. And I can change that only when I'm in a decision-making ability and UNCDF has been a great facilitator in that way. First off, thank you so much for just a beautifully frank response. I think it's easy to forget for all of us. It's easy to forget the privilege that it is to work for the UN. And I think all of us, and again, like any organization, there are tough days, but I'm sure all of us have that similar story when we got that first notification that this was going to be something that we were going to do. And I share that view with you that for me, it was, it felt like the realization of my mother's dream. So I, I definitely hear where you're coming from and it's nice. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. Again, a great answer because you provided so much to unpack. And there's so much to discuss based on that one answer. I want to get to one point that you referenced, which I think is an important point that may not quite go as noticed as it should. And it's the role that the UN can play in the context of social impact. Because obviously, when we talk about social impact, we always talk about a multi-stakeholder approach. And we talk about governments, local governments, national governments. We talk about the private sector. We talk about the NGO space. I'm just curious... In your experience, what is it about the UN in particular? What does the UN bring to that multi-stakeholder space that enables us to specifically play a critical role in advancing social impact? David, that's a great question. And I'm speaking from first-hand experience that when I landed into Suwa, which is the capital city of Fiji, where the head office is for the UNCDF, you overlook this beautiful ocean and you feel so privileged to be doing great work and with a great view, right? All of us are very happy to be back in the office. And that's when you realize that Pacific is the largest and the deepest water body in the world. It covers one third of the Earth's surface. But the problems related to the water are equally important. And I'm talking about Sustainable Development Goal 14, the life underwater, which is so important for the Pacific Islanders because that gives them food, livelihood, and COVID-19 and the climate change has made, sadly enough, this aspect of life underwater not so good. And climate change is impacting lives of so many people. Just to give an example, Fiji has the largest, sixth largest coral reef in the world. And coral reef supports an estimated of one billion people's livelihood. 
And when we're looking at such a number, and I want this number to sink in because climate change is putting life of coral reefs in danger. They're getting bleached. We don't see a lot of fish around the surface anymore, water surface. And with this in mind, when I learned about the blue economy work we are doing in the region, it really blew me off because that talks about what you just mentioned about bringing everyone into the room. So the program that we are running in the region with UNDP Joint SDG Fund really speaks about helping the last mile and making sure that these communities are resilient. So the work is potentially all about investing in positive coral reef businesses and making sure that we help the Fiji government launch the first blue bond and the money and the proceeds from that bond goes into sustainable fisheries and positive coral reef businesses. So the kind of social impact and the reach UNCDF provides and it works with other UN bodies, I think that goes to show that collaboration is the key and the future that we are aiming for, it's in our hands to really shape it up. So it is very crucial for us to walk hand in hand and walk the talk. Yeah, walk the talk. It's a fabulous point. And I've seen it too, again, in my limited time at the UN, where just to be able to be a quote unquote honest broker just makes a tremendous difference. Thank you for citing coral reefs. It is such a critically important driver of the SDG agenda. And one of the things that I've learned in terms of coral reef work is that it also relates to food security. In addition to the point that you're making, um, really sustainable growth and financial inclusion. So thank you for citing that. Clearly, you gravitated and gravitate very closely towards the cause of women's economic empowerment. I want to probe that on a personal level to see what your drivers are. And you already discussed how it personally inspires you and your personal inspirations. But I think from a practical and a technical standpoint at first, if this is too rudimentary of a question, please let me know. But I think people need to understand at a basic level, what are the challenges of women's economic empowerment that digital in particular can solve? Or what's the digital fix? or the digital solution that becomes relevant in the context of women's economic empowerment? I'm glad you asked me this because this is the Pandora box where you can talk endlessly. But at the same time, I spoke about the offline to online switch earlier. And I think that's beautifully accelerated because of COVID. We are able to do this sitting miles apart because of the role of technology. So we got to keep in mind that we're looking at 1 billion unbanked women and one in five, those unbanked women are not able to open accounts because of not having an ID. And that ID is not in a digital form either. So imagine if a woman entrepreneur or an SME working in one of the small island states in the Pacific region, she is not able to sell the goods and the services because she doesn't have access to technology. She doesn't have a collateral in her name. She doesn't have a digital footprint, a financial footprint. She doesn't have a collateral. She doesn't have an asset in her name. So she is not bankable in the most easiest financial language. So how can we bring such women entrepreneurs, SMEs, and small stall owners into the financial blanket? And I think that's the beauty of the work we do in the region. Because we are working on programs that really help these women use digital tools. So an example that really speaks to your question is what we are doing in PNG. There is a consulting firm that we have partnered with. It's called Talkstread. It's actually an SME, which is female run. 
and they provide trainings to women entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs. And these women are getting simple skills of digital literacy and financial literacy. But before they onboard on that journey, it basically starts with changing the habits and creating the habits. And David, you'll be surprised. I was reading one of the questionnaires right after the training and it really moved me because one of the trainee mentioned that the big takeaway for her has been to really understand that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Yeah, so It's all about making sure that you change your habits that don't serve you. You learn about budgeting, you learn about savings, you learn about opening a bank account. And at the end of the day, we really want these women to be taking charge of their financial well-being and knowing that they are the boss of their own lives and not being dependent on the male counterpart in the family. So I think when I hear such stories and when I hear of the work that we're doing, for instance, in Fiji and in other countries that I'm covering right now, where we have managed to digitize the police certification. So typically when seasonal workers from these island countries move to New Zealand, Australia for seasonal jobs, it takes them almost a year to get their police certificate. And we have managed to digitize the entire process. So they don't have to spend a bomb to get from their little island to the main city, to the capital city to make that first move or getting registered for the police certificate. They can do it while they're sitting in the island town and do this over the app. So these are the great examples of reaching the last mile and leaving no one behind. That's remarkable. That really reflects another interesting thing that I've learned in the course of my time at UNCDF, how expensive it can be for people to pursue economic opportunities and work opportunities, particularly outside of their immediate communities. And sometimes it creates a vicious cycle where because it's so onerous and so prohibitive, they find themselves even more indebted just to pay for the cost of shipping themselves, of bringing themselves to the place where the work is. And so by creating those efficiencies, you're really leveling the playing field for communities that really are typically not catered to by the global financial architecture. It's remarkable. And you're reading my mind because you just presented at the Singapore FinTech Festival. I believe it was either last week or a couple of weeks ago. And I know that there's an initiative that was just announced with our partners from Singapore. Would love for you to unpack that if you'd like. Absolutely. So I was at the Singapore FinTech Festival speaking and also it was a great time because we managed to sign a memorandum of understanding with the Central Bank of Singapore, Monetary Authority of Singapore. And it seems to me life has come a full circle because I started my career in Singapore and I've seen Singapore as a smart nation. It is a small island development state, but the kind of progress Singapore has managed to do in the last 53 years of their independent life, it's tremendous. And while I work with the UNCDF, I think it will be my great honor if I'm able to bring the best practices of Singapore to the Pacific Island countries. So the, the partnership really speaks about fueling the SME growth in the Pacific Island. And David, this is a very important aspect because we are talking about 97% of the population in the Pacific Island purely depends on agriculture and the remaining is informal sector. And the informal sector is underserved, not getting enough capital because the banks don't see them as bankable. They are risk averse when it comes to lending money to these SMEs. 
So the idea here is to fuel money, prospects, and digital tools, financial literacy, so that the SMEs can grow and thrive. Because COVID-19 has displaced so many of these small, medium enterprises, especially run by women. So we would like to see how we can move the dial there. And with this partnership, we are actually implementing what has been achieved in Ghana and Philippines, which totally is a fintech solution. So in simple words, we are trying to source data from alternative channels. So when a decision is being made, whether the money should be lent out, whether the money should be given to an entity or not, the decision-making purely relies on the financial data, the credit history, the bank accounts. And all these data points are not available to the SMEs or MSMEs in the Pacific region. So now how can we source alternative data points that can help the financial institution with the decision-making? So while we're collecting those alternative data systems, we are also trying to tokenize them with the use of blockchain, which will be verified. And we're creating an ecosystem by which we are not only providing digital and financial literacy to the SMEs, and those certificates actually go into that tokenized fashion. And the banks would know that this person actually may not have the ability to pay, but has the intent to pay. So we are moving from the ability to intent and we are establishing the intent by collecting data sources, which are not the conventional old fashioned, but designing a new architecture altogether so that the SMEs can thrive. First up, that's fascinating. And congratulations for the initiative. You mentioned tokenization, which I think probably for a lot of people, they would be surprised to hear that an entity within the United Nations is involved in tokenization. I'd love for you to just unpack that piece a little more in the sense of how is tokenization bridging the gap between the MSME community and capital markets and financial service providers. And just again, if you could talk a little bit more about the experience that you've seen in a real world context. Yeah, that's a great question, David. So when you look at the capital markets, they are definitely willing to reach to the last mile through the blended finance solution that UNCDF has been providing over the course of many years. So there is definitely the intent to lend. But now how can we change their perspective in terms of understanding the needs of SMEs? Because for SMEs, there's no one solution that fits at all. And when we talk about blockchain and digital tokens or digital currency, it's important to establish from the word go that these are two different things. Blockchain is the technology, the infrastructure on which the digital tokens really thrive and work on. So we're not talking about digital tokens, not going anywhere closer to that. We're just using the technology framework, the infrastructure, which is blockchain. And while we're trying to use this, there have been real use cases in countries where they're trying to source data points based on other areas of what SMEs are doing. So for instance, the SMEs may be having a rental agreement. The employees speak very nicely about their employers, the SME owners. So we're collecting all those data points. And if the SME owner is going for a financial workshop or literacy workshop, you're putting all those data points in a tokenized fashion through the use of blockchain into a system which is verifiable. So the minute certificate is entered into the system, all the parties can view it and can verify it. They can be sure that this certificate, which is there in the system, is encrypted and verifiable. 
And as and when the ecosystem grows, when we get more players into the business, meaning we get the other side of this supply chain, which is the financial institutions and the banks, they enter into the ecosystem of digital verified tokens, and they can assess an individual or an SME based on the tokens that has been collected by this SME owner. And the decision-making can happen quickly because we are using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the money transfer from the bank to the owner can happen in less than a second because we're talking about a digital account, which is linked, or a digital wallet, which is linked to a mobile wallet. So the system sounds seamless, it's frictionless, efficient, but it's going to take some time. And I think we are at a very early stage where we're just trying to pilot this in Fiji at a very small level. And hopefully the results are great and we can implement this in all the remaining countries that we have in the Pacific region. This precisely speaks to the ethos of UNCDF, which is in our heart, we really have an ethos of innovation where we are piloting the solutions of tomorrow and we're doing it for the markets that again are typically overlooked by the global financial architecture. It seems, at least in my time, there seems to be a misconception among people in the private sector about clients in these markets that, well, there are no savings. What's the point? Like there's, at least as I read it, they almost make the mistake of conflating a lack of financial inclusion with a lack of finances. And those two aren't the same. And so I would assume that for the private sector, there are volumes of untapped savings that can be accessed. And so you're talking about new consumers, you're talking about potential depositors. It's not a situation where lots of communities that have financing, it's that financing that needs to be brought into institutionally. But I don't know if that's something, if you can speak to that as well. That's a great point, David, because when we look at the alternative lending mechanisms, of course, one of the examples I shared with you is what we are implementing or has been implemented globally. But at the same time, you may look at other ways of crowding the capital, right? And especially in the startup space, you see this happening through peer-to-peer lending, where great ideas are being put on platforms. And these platforms actually help to populate these business ideas to a small or a big community of investors. These could be angel investors or venture capitalists. And they read through these business ideas and this basic betting has been done. So they are doing this matchmaking between the entrepreneurs, the idea makers, and the money flow. So it is happening as we speak, and it is a regularized licensed business in Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, and so many countries worldwide. And I think we need those kind of mechanisms because we know that even a small SME may be struggling to find investment for their own business, but they may be willing to invest into a great business idea. And that equity stake can really take this person to somewhere in five years' time. We have seen how Uber and a Paytm of this world have thrived just based on a great idea and serving the unmet market needs. When we talk about lending, I think, of course, we all know capital is the life and blood of a business. But at the same time, when we are looking at capitalizing on the solutions, technology can really help with linking those missing pieces. And then when you also look at the work that we are doing, especially in the digital economy space, I think it's important to mention what we are doing in the e-commerce umbrella, 
because a quarter of the population has been shopping online thanks to COVID-19. And the work that we're doing currently is to just see how we can help women entrepreneurs, how we can help SMEs in the Pacific Island countries to really adopt to the digital economy. So helping the governments realize the importance of digital ID, digital payments, and these e-commerce platforms. So the future is digital. It's just about when we onboard that journey and adapt ourselves to that digital living. I'm actually really happy you brought up COVID-19 and I want to thank you for everything you've shared. So I'm down to the last couple of questions. And again, do you want to discuss COVID-19? Because I think for those of us, particularly if you're based out of the HQ in New York, COVID-19 is in this new phase, but that's not necessarily the case from a global standpoint. I'd love to hear about the current, how COVID-19 is impacting your clients right now. Not so much what we've seen over the past four years, but literally as we speak. Before I answer that question, David, I wanted to tell you an article that I read very recently. And what really stood out for me was the fact that women have actually done 512 billion hours of unpaid care work during COVID-19. Wow. 512 billion hours. That's right. And this is three times more than any male person has done. So this is the kind of sacrifice that's going on around the world, which we don't recognize. And we think it's just the right for them to do that. Then just into that is the fact that we are looking at women-led businesses or women-led employment opportunities. Women are letting go of them because they don't feel the need to continue because they feel so burdened by the household duties. They don't really have the ability to step out and really work on this. And this is also true in the Pacific because Pacific has the highest unemployment rate for women in the world. Wow. And the gender wow. violence is the worst in the Pacific. It's twice as the global rates for gender violence. So David, when I read this article, I was absolutely more and I was feeling privileged that I come from a family where I was protected and I felt as equal as a man would at any point of the time. But at the same time, this is where the UN City of Work really helped us to capture some of these problems and unlock private capital for devising solutions that really help build resident communities. And COVID-19 has just been an accelerator in many ways. I've spoken about digital or financial literacy level going up during this whole period. And now that we are going to this new normal of trying to adjust the hybrid world of being virtual, being person, I, I think it's been hard for a lot of women. And the work that we are doing, I have briefly mentioned this with the e-commerce work stream, is very important because we know that really solves the problem of isolated islands in the Pacific Islands. Because Fiji has got 330 islands and only 110 islands has got people living there. So how do we reach out to the last mile? It's only through technology, through drones, through e-commerce that you can connect individuals and businesses, customers and the suppliers. And we are trying to digitize some of these supply chain solutions as well. The work that we're doing in PNG for digitizing payments, digitizing supply chains is very important because we are trying to capture the SMEs there and we are trying to bring the digital solutions and also creating a record. Because if you remember, David, I mentioned about 
these SMEs not having the record, the bookkeeping, the transaction keeping. So we are in a way forcing them to use these apps so that the records are captured and this record can be used in the future when they approach a bank for getting a loan. So I think that's the kind of solution we are looking at. We're not just trying to help a man catch a fish, right? We're trying to see how we can give this person a livelihood for years to come. It's tremendous, but also the figures that you mentioned are so harrowing. It's, it really speaks to the importance of a lot of organizations' work, including UNCDF. But again, thank you so much for giving your time. I want to ask a final question, and it's a fairly simple one, which if you or if I'm asking you to define success for UNCDF in the Pacific five years from now, what would that look like? I would say threefold. Sorry, I'm a little bit greedy and also ambitious by nature, so I don't settle for <laughs> I'm not your average person. Um, I would say women being digitally and financially empowered. And I want that number to be at at least 50%. I want more women at the decision table. And if you don't have a seat at the decision table, bring your own chair and the table. From the blue economy side, I want to say a resident economy, especially for people who are living by the ocean. So that money that we are trying to pull into the joint SDG fund, global funds for coral reef, really helps the fishery community and, and bring a level playing field for female farmers as well. Last but not the least, last week you had Christian, my colleague, who was talking about climate risk insurance. And I think that's a great work that's being done in the region. I would like to say more women ensuring their future making better decisions, not only when it comes to savings, insurance, but also running their own businesses. I want more women to be their own boss and realizing the ability to really shape their world and the future by changing an idea into a business venture. It's a great answer. And frankly, I think when you're citing digital, when you're citing women's economic empowerment, when you're in sight, when you're mentioning Global Fund for Coral Reefs, it's a powerful reminder that the SDGs are not 17 disparate goals. They are interlinked and they all need to succeed and they need to reach everyone. And, and you're playing a critical role in seeing that happen. So Neha Mehta, our proudly, our lead in the Pacific, our regional Pacific leader for the UN Capital Development Fund. Thank you so much for spending time with us again. It's rather late in the evening over there. So thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure. And just before I say goodbye, I want to say that the future we want is achievable, but we need to act now. So it's important that we continue to do the great work that we're doing with all the UN agencies. And I'm very sure the future will be very bright. Vinaka, thank you for having me on your show, David. All the best to you. It's a beautiful call to action. Thank you for it. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Eduardo Tensioni will be coming back very soon. Thanks so much.